you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 27 as we begin. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What John does here is warn the church of infiltration, of people that have come into the church and taught false things and taken people captive in their false teaching. John comes right out and says that these people are antichrist, meaning against or instead of Christ. They are preaching something that contradicts the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people today, if you were to argue what is the Antichrist, they would only think of that long, in the future, some point, the capital Antichrist. What John's getting at here is that there are already Antichrists in their midst. And that there are people that have already opposed the message of the gospel, that have opposed Christ even in their midst. In fact, what you, if you were to understand the background, which we'll get into here in a moment, these people came in trying to dissuade people from what John was telling them. These people came in trying to pull a following after themselves in opposition to what John was teaching. And unfortunately, what happens many times is in our day and age, we are more influenced by false teaching than we would like to realize. So this morning as we begin, we're going to be looking at number one, awareness of deception, verses 18 through 23, and number two, abiding in the truth, verses 24 through 29. So number one, awareness of deception, verses 18 through 23. Let's read that again. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You see, what John does here is he previously warned them of influence outside of them, the world. Those influences that come in from the outside into the church. Now he's warning them of influences in the church. False teaching that's arose, arisen in the church. They've infiltrated the church and brought destructive teachings into the church. You see, most people think of the deception that will one day occur with the Antichrist coming and setting up his kingdom here on this earth. What they're not paying attention to is the deception that's going on in their midst today. Most Christians are thinking of some future event and neglecting to think of what's going on right now. In fact... It's a present danger, not just a future one. The last time, that phrase refers to the entire period between the first and second advent of Jesus' return. John is expecting Jesus to come again at any time. This terminology can be used in two different ways. God's program for Israel, which we see in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and the future realization of the kingdom for Israel. Messages of judgment followed by messages of hope using the term latter days or later days. This speaks of the entire period of time between the incarnation or Jesus coming to this earth and the rapture of the church. God has been speaking through his son since the incarnation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to the first part of verse 2, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. James warned the rich in the Christian community that they were storing up treasure in the last days. It was current to them, not just something in the future. James 5, verses 1 through 3 says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. It's important when we use these phrases that we use them in the proper context. Don't just think of last days as something that is still to come. You're already a part of that. John was already a part of this. Peter does warn about scoffers who will be coming one day in the last days, which they already had back then and still do today. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, look at what he says. Knowing this first, 
that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What these people are going to be proclaiming is that there's no return of Jesus. He's not coming back. Everything's going to keep happening the way it has always gone on. In fact, there's a very popular teaching today in the church that Jesus will never literally return. And many have bought into that. There's only the Lord up in heaven. He will never return to earth. That is a false teaching. When John speaks of the last time or last days, it is the entire period between the incarnation through the rapture of the church when God calls the church home. The word imminency means something that is hanging over your head. It could happen at any time. Don't confuse it with the word soon. That is not what imminency means. Imminency means at any moment, at any time, the Lord can return. That does not necessarily mean soon. It could be, but it does not mean that. The apostles, by the way, were not looking for signs, as many do today in the church. They were looking for the Lord's return. If you're one that's looking only for signs but not looking for Jesus, you kind of have it backwards. If you're looking for what is it looking like out there and you're not paying attention to the fact that you're going to meet Jesus and he's coming back for his church, then you have your, your priority in the wrong spot. And we've all fallen into that trap, especially if we love the book of Revelation, which many of us do. Like it intrigues us, right? We love studies on that. They were looking for the son's return, which is why you see the scoffers in that Peter passage, right? The scoffers are making fun of that. He's not coming back. Jesus isn't returning. Everything's going to keep going the way that it always has. Antichrist. John is the only writer that uses this term. Did you know that? John is the only one that uses the term Antichrist. And there are different views on what he means here. Some would say that it's not a personal entity to be expected in the future, but a spirit of heresy. Obviously, there's a future person that is in mind because the Antichrist that he's referring to in this text are real people. Not just some spirit of heresy. John says the Antichrist were present in the day, and they were people. In the Old and New Testament, there is a person expected to, who will be the ultimate personification of the Antichrist. There is one coming who will try to persuade people to worship him. The view of the early church was the Antichrist was a coming person, even though some referred that to Rome and the Pope. But to them, it was always a person. Antichrist refers to a person. And it can refer to instead of, the Antichrist will pose as Christ, thus a Jew, possibly. The horn comes from the Gentile nations. Instead of, Antichrist will oppose Christ by usurping his position. 
He will be against him. He will oppose Christ. But don't ever be mistaken that when somebody is in opposition, they will come out and tell you that. Not everything is as it seems. And unfortunately, the church is duped by this all the time. Because something looks true doesn't make it true, church. Which is why he makes this next statement. They went out from us. These antichrists went out from us. These people were infiltrating the church and then they moved out of the church because they were getting called out. This is not simply a person that leaves your church and goes to another one. This is one that has abandoned the faith and essentially followed in opposition to the very faith they claim they have. Don't ever abuse this text, believer. It is not talking about someone leaving this church and going to another faithful Bible teaching church. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about people that were in false teaching, were promoting false teaching, and left that church community to pretty much start their own cult, if you will. And that's what many cults are today. Many of these people came and were part of a Christian community, and they started saying, I don't agree with this. I don't believe the Bible really means that. And they start with teaching false things. Before you know what, they have a following, and then they move out from that community. These people are antichrists, ones who have no longer continued in the faith and been overtaken by deception in opposition to the truth in Christ himself. You see, these men were possibly teaching others as though they were given authority by the apostles when they weren't. You ever, you ever have a discussion with somebody and they gave you the indication that someone else backed their position when they really didn't? You ever had that happen? Oh, so-and-so believes what I do. These people were essentially trying to promote their teaching as though it was apostolic, that they had the same authority that the apostles did, and that the apostles backed them up. They were not backed by the apostles, and their message was clearly a divider. Believer, doctrine divides. It has always divided from the days of the early church even to the present. Doctrine divides from true and false teaching. As Wearsby points out, if you will investigate the history of the false cults and anti-Christian religious systems in today's world, you will find that in most cases, their founders started out in a local church. They were with us, but not of us. So they went out from us and started their own groups. These people didn't like to be under church authority, so they became their own authority. They didn't like to be held accountable to the word of God, so they began their own cult. Anyone who begins preaching a different gospel or a different Christ than what was presented by the apostles and writers of scripture should be separated from. One of the most disturbing trends in many churches is the desire to please the audience rather than to be faithful to the text, which is essentially the warning that Paul writes to Timothy that applies here in this text in 1 John as well. 
where Paul talks about the fact that false teachers come in and promote destructive heresies. They're destroying the church. The difference between those that went out, the Antichrist, and those that stay faithful to the truth is very clearly revealed here in this text, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in verse 27, the anointing, if you will. The anointing is said to teach, indicating that the anointing is a person, the Holy Spirit himself. Both Luke and Paul refer to the Holy Spirit as an anointing. Let's look at the first one in Luke, Luke 4, 17 through 19. And this is Jesus. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Paul later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, he says this, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Every believer has a special anointing, and that special anointing is the Holy Spirit himself. There's no double blessing later like people want to claim. You got it all when you got Christ and the Holy Spirit. You don't have to separately ask for the Holy Spirit. He's given to you as a down payment when you trust in Christ. He's given to all believers who repent and turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And that is what separates a true child of God and a false disciple. The Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus' prophecy in the upper room after the ascension, he said that he would send the Spirit. The Spirit would guide and abide. It's parallel to what you see in chapter 2, verse 27 in 1 John. The important thing to remember is that the Holy Spirit does not give new revelation, believer, but he works with what has already been revealed. So many people today want to proclaim that they have apostolic authority as the disciples did back then. They do not. When Jesus commissioned the disciples, he gave them specific authority that you and I do not have. We have the same Holy Spirit, but we are not enabled in the same way that they were to fulfill their mission as apostles. Notice what he says here later in the text in 1 John chapter 2. He says, you know all things. Well, that's a loaded statement right there. Is John saying that we understand everything? That we've come to full knowledge? No, that's not what he's saying here. He does not mean that Christians know everything about everything. We ought to be careful where, when, and about what we are dogmatic 
It does not mean that we have all spiritual knowledge, everything in the field of religion or the field of the Bible. That's not what he's saying here. In verse 20, there is a different word for the word know, which meant knowledge in fullness, gnosko. And it frequently suggests inception or progress in knowledge. While Oida here in verse 20 suggests knowledge by perception. The Holy Spirit makes certain things clear that the one apart from him will never understand. If you and I are to determine whether something's true or false, the Holy Spirit determines that for us. That's what he's getting at here. The all things is in context to false teaching that's being brought into the church. Which is one of the reasons why we abuse phrases like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So if I just wish to, to lift 500 pounds, I should be able to do it? That's not what the verse is talking about. Context is always important when we define phrases. The all things here is in reference to the false teachers and understanding that you have the Holy Spirit as an anointing to point out what it is that they're teaching that's false. Generally, he's saying the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Romans 3, Ephesians 2 and 4. The unsaved person, because of sin, cannot fully grasp spiritual truth. The unbeliever does not grasp biblical truth. Oh, they can recollect some, recollect some things, make some statements, but they truly don't grasp spiritual truth. Specifically, he is speaking of the heresy these antichrists were propagating. John's readers knew the truth of the person of Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the all things that's being mentioned here. You understand who Jesus really is. These false teachers did not. They did not know these truths concerning Christ because they were smarter or more intellectual, but because the Holy Spirit had revealed them those truths. You and I don't know truth from error apart from the Holy Spirit when it comes to spiritual things. We don't. And that's why one of the things that I think should always be a sign of encouragement is when someone's telling you something about God or the Lord Jesus Christ and it seems like something's off. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. If a person senses something is off with a false teaching because they are so in tune with the Spirit, they will clearly see that God has worked, if you will, a spiritual intuition in their life. You ever been around a person that has kind of like an intuition, they kind of understand what's going on around them? They're very perceptive. They're not just somebody that just kind of goes with the flow every time. They're kind of like, wait, something's off here. That's essentially what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. He gives them, if you will, warning signs when something is off. And an encouragement when something's on. Usually when a person is fine with all sorts of false teaching that's brought into the church, they are not perceptive enough spiritually to see clearly what is being taught. Which is one of the reasons why I stress this as much as I do. Believers... If you're not in the word of God, your spiritual senses are going to be dull. 
you're not going to have the perception you ought to have. Most false, false teaching sounds very close to the truth, believers. But it's off. Jesus has promised to give us life and to give it in abundance. That doesn't mean, when people quote that verse, right, I've come to give you life that you have it more abundantly, that doesn't mean that Jesus promises that you have everything go great in life. That doesn't mean that he gives us everything in this life in abundance to the point where you have riches you'll never imagine, you'll never get sick, you'll never have tragedy strike. That you'll have the healthiest life ever on this earth if you just believe? That's abusing that text. That is not what Jesus is saying. Else he'd be a liar because what ended up with him? What kind of end did Jesus have on our behalf? To our abundance he sacrificed himself. To take up your cross daily. That's the life of abundance Jesus promises us. And everybody twists it to mean, I get more money on this earth. That's what God's promising. No. That's called false teaching. Stay away from people like that. Because they obviously haven't been honest about all the disciples' lives and even the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus came to give us a life abundant is a very different definition that they're claiming. So what is meant in this text by denying Jesus as the Christ? Denying the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. Well, this would automatically refer to those who in that day denied the Lordship and Messiah status of Christ. Automatically on the table. Those that denied that Jesus was Messiah were already a part of what the group he's describing is. And those that today will deny that Jesus is the Christ and the only way to the Father are also false teachers. You can take that to the bank. Gnostics back then believed that the spirit or immaterial was divine and the human or material was sinful, so Jesus could not be Messiah or the Son of God. He could not have deity and be who he says he was. The connection to the Trinity is so important here that is missed by so many. So many people try to separate Jesus from the Father and the Holy Spirit and realize, don't realize that that Trinitarian connection is important in the Bible. Jesus makes a clear statement here that those who were seeking to kill him after the triumphal entry were not just opposing him, and we're going to read this in John chapter 12, they were opposing the Father as well. Listen to what he says in John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes in me, but believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and he who sees me, sees him who sent me. What Jesus is saying is, you can't separate me from the Father. If you don't accept me, you've not accepted the Father. If you've not accepted the Father, then you have not accepted me either. 
Believing in God without accepting the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is not preaching the same God, believer. There's a lot of people that talk about God all the time. You'll see it all the time on Christian radio stations, even in media reports. God is an easy topic to talk about. As soon as you mention Jesus in connection, then it becomes a whole different conversation. Now you're getting specific. So many say that they believe, but they reject the Son as presented in the Word of God. Their version of Jesus isn't the Jesus that's taught in the Bible, which means they're not believing the right one. Have you ever used your imagination as a child? Someone gives you a story, explains something, and you start kind of really thinking through it and going, man, I, my mind's wandering, now I'm thinking something else. What happens in the Christian life sometimes is people will start making assumptions of what God is based on their own imagination that they think is right, not what Scripture clearly reveals. And that is how many get into false teaching. Essentially what you have today in devotional books is someone that open, you open the devotional, that author tells you, just sit there and God will tell you stuff. You know what they didn't tell you to do? Open this more. Unfortunately, a lot of Christianity today is more Eastern than it is biblical. A lot of it is emptying your mind and letting whatever it come back in. It's not the meditation that's taught in the Word of God. The meditation that's taught in the Word of God is dwelling on the Word of God to have that change you from the inside out. In fact, verse 23 in Matthew chapter 10 ends with denial or confession of the Son, as Jesus himself points out. In Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, he says this, Jesus speaking, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So here's a key truth that I think all of us as believers need to remember. Confession is to be public. There's none of this private stuff, I believe God, and I keep it to myself. Confession of biblical gospel truth is essential to salvation. Now, if you think I'm out of line in making that statement, let's read Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Listen to what verse 9 says. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't stop there. Doesn't stop there. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, what does it say? Confession is made unto salvation. There's no private stuff when it comes to believing the Lord Jesus. And anybody that wants to hide their Christian faith behind nice, cute phrases and words may not be confessing the same Jesus they say. Anybody that goes on CNN and wants to talk about how they love God, but they don't really want to talk about Jesus, that's a false teacher many times or if their version of Jesus doesn't match up with what the word clearly reveals they're not worshiping the same Jesus 
This is no small thing, believers. To be outside the fellowship of believers and truly denying Christ. The evidence of an unbeliever is typically seen by their denial of Christ. Not that they can't try to be a good person, live a good life. It's thinking that they can do all those things without him and get to heaven. Which is one of the reasons why you have popular Christian teachers when they go on a, a big news media site and someone asks them point blank, what do you think? Do you think, do you think all religions lead to heaven, to God? And the supposed Christian teacher goes, well, you know, I can't say. You don't believe the Bible. Why don't you just say that? Why don't you just be honest? There are too many teachers today that are just sitting there fluff. They don't have any substance or depth to them at all. They're there coming to, coming to people every week, giving them TED Talks, talking about how amazing they are in their sin. And how Jesus didn't really rescue from sin. He's fine with it. And he no longer, he doesn't just tolerate it, he celebrates you in it. That's false teaching. Thinking Jesus is optional typically not always means that you may not have a relationship with him. Not that we don't go through valleys, we do as believers. So I have to be careful what I say here. But when you and I think that Jesus is optional, and that relationship with him is very fractured. Which is why John comes to the next point about the need to abide once again. Abiding in the truth. How, how do I counter this? How do I counter false teaching that's infiltrating the church today? Verses 24 through 29. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie... And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Believer, do you want to have confidence in this Christian life? Do you want to not live in doubt, in fear, in ignorance, you want to have confidence in this Christian life, then you need to learn how to abide. You need to learn how to abide. Continue in the gospel truth, that which you've heard from the beginning. So many people forget where it all started. So many people think that they can just graduate from the gospel truth that they once heard. The gospel should still affect you and I this morning. John is writing this warning to believers because there are those that will try to deceive them. And the truth is, there are those that try to deceive you today as well, believer. 
you think that's not true, you're not paying attention. In fact, if you don't believe it's true, you probably are deceived. Knowing the Trinity is essential for spotting false teaching. It's not just a passing thought. Knowing the God of the Bible is essential for spotting false teaching. Many of the false teachers today look and sound spot on. But if you actually paid attention to what they really teach and believe, you ought to be horrified by their departure from the faith. Now, I try my best as a pastor to give practical advice where, in today's context, we'll make it more clear for the church to be able to, to detect certain things. So here are some practical ways to spot false teachers today when examining the writings and the warnings that are laid out by John and other writers throughout the scriptures. Number one, false teachers will teach what fits with culture than what accords with scripture. Examples of this are stances on moral issues shifting because the Bible is supposedly irrelevant now. Prophesying for God, but not really speaking on his behalf. False teachers like to be more popular with culture than they are with what God wants. There's another way to spot a false teacher. False teachers will usually have a wonderful personality that attracts people more to them and their teaching rather than bringing them back to the study of the word of God for themselves. In fact, false teachers typically are not going to tell you really to dig deep in the word. They just won't. They'll give you little cliche statements. God's got a plan for my life and you're just going to keep believing it without ever reading the Bible. Because the God's, God's plan for their life is one that they give you rather than clearly revealing that in the word of God. Paul wasn't about impressing people, but about being faithful. And he even commended Bereans for checking out the word for themselves. Believer, I don't ever want you to take my word for it when I preach. I want you to check it with the word of God. Because that's how it ought to be. False teachers are usually in it for the money and the gain of the name they can make for themselves. They exploit those around them to gain power and influence. They are a lot more like Pharisees than they would like to admit. They just would consider themselves a little less legalistic. They just have their own set of rules that they've established. Here's a big red flag. False teachers are quick to critique those that live upright lives before God because of the blatant irreverence they have for the word of God. They pick and choose what they want to read out of the Bible. You know that depressing book called Lamentations? They would never read, read or study that for the, t the context of a congregation. That wouldn't be the book they'd choose to ever go through. Love for the brethren is only encouraged if it means we give each other a pass on sin. That's what false teachers teach. Listen, brother, sister, we're all sinners. We should just be fine with that. There's no reason to call out sin. We're all the same. They have not been clearly revealing the word of God. Many taught license, by the way, even in Paul's day. Don't think that it's just some new thing that came up with the church today. 
that teaching of license has always existed, always existed. There have always been people that have abused the grace of God. People that'll tell you it's perfectly fine to live whatever you want, God is fine with it. False teaching. Here's the last one. False teachers usually spend more time on jokes and anecdotes than going through the text of Scripture they're supposedly going through. If a false teacher is trying to get people enticed, they're going to use fun, cute stories and humor. There's nothing wrong with humor. There's nothing wrong with anecdotes. But what many times happens with false teachers is they will use those as the main point of their sermon, and the Bible gets like little percentage in there they use the bible as a springboard to just get into whatever they want if the bible is open it isn't the key element of the sermon or the message what most false teachers are after when it comes to these things is making sure that they have the audience worked up to a certain point so that the audience likes them and likes the positive message they're delivering i I have a warning for all of us as believers that we need to be reminded of, when Jesus returns, and he will return, he is not coming back to give everybody high fives and hugs. He's not. He's going to demand worship. And oh, the danger of any man that claimed to be a pastor or a minister of the gospel that abused what the word says. The kind of danger that they're in when they finally meet Jesus, I can't even imagine. They're not getting any attaboy for what they've done. Believer, don't you follow that teaching. These are just some of the practical ways to spot a false teacher. But as discussed earlier, the main way to determine this is by abiding so we are not ashamed when we stand before Christ for how we were duped into believing the lies. Believer, you and I, when we stand before Christ, we want to have confidence. We want to have assurance before we stand before him. And that confidence and assurance can only be found in what he clearly speaks in his word. John is including himself with those he's writing to. He himself wants to have this confidence as well. Abiding in Christ, believer, takes a proactive effort. It does not happen by just mere wish or desire. I hope I abide better tomorrow. There's a proactive sense in all of this. You need to put effort in. In fact, Paul makes a statement, I believe, to the Corinthians, I strive more than all of them, but not I. The grace of God that worked in me. you got to work as hard as you can as if it depends on you knowing it depends on him. Abiding in Christ is what gives confidence. And that confidence is I can do nothing apart from fellowship with that vine. I can't even live or breathe spiritually without abiding with Christ. So abiding in Christ means certain things. And, and, and if you haven't taken notes at all, I want you to write these down if you can. 
Because I know we think we know them and we typically are reminded of them, but I really want to go through this and I want you to practically think through this. Number one, abiding in Christ means that we will fill our minds with what he loves. That means that we will read his word faithfully, not sparingly. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, I'm not going to just read a little bit of the Bible. Hopefully, it helps my life. I'm going to read this because I want as much as I can out of this. We're going to listen to wholesome things, whether it's music or that audio book or that podcast. We're going to fill our minds with what pleases God. That's what abiding means. We will desire to fulfill His will, not our own. You don't wake up with your agenda as first. You're going, God, what do you want? I'm all in. What do you want? What do you want for my marriage, God? What kind of a husband have I been? What kind of a father have I been? God, what do you want from me as a pastor? God, what do you want from me as a church member? God, what do you want from me as a parent with children that I'm raising? We will speak what he would desire from us, not our own desires. You see, people that are truly about what God wants will take whatever he gives them and give it back. You've been blessed with certain things, don't use them for yourself. Don't hoard the promises and the blessings of God. Well, he's promised this to me, so I'm going to hold on to it for myself. No, God never meant it that way. Another way that we are to abide in Christ, that means that we will love others the way he has loved us. Jesus did not love us by denying the truth of our own sin, but rather he called us to holiness. And that's what we ought to strive with, with our brothers and sisters. Being holy, by the way, is not legalism. Don't assume that. That's biblical. It doesn't mean that you have a list of do's and don'ts. It means that because you love Christ, you're going to not do certain things that seem legalistic at times. And that's a little extreme. Why do you not do that? Because I realize that I fall into that sin easily if I do that, if I'm not. So many people don't know how to put guardrails in their lives. There's a lot more that could be said on this, but I will, I will just kind of say this point. If there are areas that you keep falling in, you might want to put some guardrails up. If there are certain people that really rub you the wrong way, they have a certain impact on your spiritual walk, you might want to stay away a little more. In fact, that's the next point. We will separate from those that hurt our relationship with Christ. Knowing the scripture truth that bad company corrupts good morals. Did you know that? And don't be shocked by this. This is a truth in the Bible. Faithful believers should stay away from people that are going to pull them in the wrong direction. That is not judgmental. That is watching out for their own soul. Now, if they come at it with a self-righteous attitude, that is wrong. That is sinful. But brother, sister, if you're always depressed and you want to speak into my life, I'm going to be a little more careful how much time I spend with you. Not because I don't care or love you. I do. I love you with all my heart. 
But if I'm around people that literally only bring me to a certain place where they're at, I cannot help others that need my encouragement as well. You know the statement just as well as I do. You can't help others until you yourself have been helped. So many believers want so much for the world to like them, they've fallen back in love with that, with that world. Which is one of the reasons why many believers love the world more than their own brothers and sisters in the church. Because like, well, those brothers and sisters are kind of telling me that I need to change some things. I don't want to change those things. They're telling you to change those things because those are the very things that are pulling you into that depth of depravity that you're in. Into that depression, into that despair. And they're trying to help you get out. That's not hatred, that's love. If you're about to get hit by a Mack truck and I don't warn you, what good am I doing? And the last way to abide in Christ is that we will submit to whatever the, the Father is doing in our lives to mature us. Believer, every single one of us, God is doing some things right now, behind the scenes, working in our lives. And you and I, in abiding in Christ, it'll be determined based on how we respond to that. You can either push back and go, God, I don't like it, I don't want it, give me something better that I like, or you can willingly submit to the will of the Father and what he's doing to mature you. Even the painful things that we would never want to deal with, God is using in our lives. And I dare say this, I know I've said it to some people in this church, and I mean this sincerely from the bottom of my heart, if you've been through a tragedy or something completely broken happened to you when you were younger or in your life recently, God is wanting not just to teach you something, but a possibility of using that very thing to minister to somebody else. And you may very well be the instrument that God uses in someone else's life. And don't take that for granted. Don't think that God is a cruel God for having you let, letting you go through that because he has a purpose and he's working it for good. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes. It is. When a person loses a loved one, it's a hard thing to swallow. But God is there to use it for good. So in conclusion, are you producing? Are you producing? He says here at the end that this is to produce righteousness or practice righteousness. So my question to you and me, are you producing? The idea here at the end of the chapter is one that is born of God is producing, practicing righteousness. To add to that previous part of abiding is a personal question. Has there been an infiltration in your fellowship with God? Maybe you ought to know better, but false teaching has actually grabbed a hold of you. You started kind of sliding on some things that Scripture says you ought to be more careful on. You tolerate things you ought not to that disrupt your walk with God. You stopped growing and stayed spiritually mature because you've allowed all sorts of false teaching to enter your mind. Most people that are spiritually mature have usually bought into false teaching. It's not a separate concept. False teaching doesn't come just through preaching, by the way. It comes through media that you consume, through music, movies, and books you read. So many people are sucked into false teaching by Christian material that's garbage. 
And they come back to the church thinking they now have found and discovered this amazing truth this Christian author presented, and it's led them into further false teaching. There are many things that can stop us from producing righteousness as the Father would desire. Maybe you, think, maybe you think you figured it out better than the Father does what your life should be about. You have your plans and your things are going to be what you want. Can I encourage you, as we said earlier, submit to the will of the Father? Like, he has it better than you could ever have it. He knows better than you ever will. I know we all say it, right? Whatever you want, Lord, I'm, is that true? Because some of those things that he's going to teach us are not always going to be pleasant to deal with. Sometimes the very thing you need to do to produce, as you should, is keeping some influence as influences at a distance to hurt your walk with God. And look, brothers and sisters, sometimes we got to say it gently but firmly. Listen, um, I really want to spend time with you. I want to be around you. Um, but right now, I really I need to get some things right in my walk with God, or I'm, I'm kind of back in close fellowship with God, and I want to make sure that I keep going. And, and sometimes when I'm around you, it's kind of hard because I fall back into that. And I don't hate you, I love you, I just, I have to be more careful. We have to be honest about those things. We don't need to be self-righteous to become Pharisees, right? I put up all these barriers so I look like I'm holier than all of you. No, that's not what we should do. But there are people sometimes that stop the progress that we've made in our Christian walk. There are friends maybe that we work with we probably shouldn't be spending as much time with. Always remember, believer, there is always pruning that happens because God wants you to produce more fruit. You need to willingly submit to the Father, even in areas that it's difficult to understand how it can be a benefit to you. Until you've reached that point, you don't understand what that means. Until you don't understand, you're like, I, I don't understand how this is helpful, God. Like, how is this a benefit to me? Like, you took something away that I wanted and I need in my life. And God reminds us once again in his word that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts and his ways above ours. You want to have confidence when you stand before Christ, believer? Produce righteousness by abiding in him. John MacArthur in closing says, A righteous identity must issue in righteous behavior. Such behavior is the outward manifestation of the inward transformation. And it is the only sure proof that such transformation has taken place. 